If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 5 this morning. We are continuing on in our series in Luke's gospel, and we are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day. We are looking this morning at Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. We're going to read down to verse 26, the account of Jesus healing the paralytic, whose friends bring him to him uh, on that bed. And you'll find this on page 861 if you're using a copy of the Church Bible. I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning as we are looking at Luke chapter uh, 5, verses 17 to 26. Let me pray for us before we come to the preaching of God's Word. Father in heaven, we thank you that great was the company of witness when you gave your word. We thank you that every time you speak, you are accomplishing your purposes. We thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. And we pray, O God, that you would lay bare the intents of our heart this morning. We pray that you would convict us of sin. We pray that you would shine the glorious light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ into our hearts. We pray that you would utter to each man and woman and boy and girl who come to you this morning in faith that precious word, your sins are forgiven. We pray that you would make us to hear the voice of the Son of God and to come forth and to live. And so, our God, we ask that you would accomplish your purposes as your word is read and preached. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Luke has been uh, tracing the ministry of the Lord Jesus, and now in a very focused way is tracing the ministry of the Lord Jesus out as he goes and inaugurates his ministry and goes deeper and deeper and deeper into the public ministry. And as Jesus has been preaching and as he has been healing, Luke now tells us on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. They were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and led him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise Pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I was 11 years old in 1988 and I will never forget watching with my dad on the television, what would become one of the most famous political statements in American history, George Herbert Bush would say, read my lips, no new taxes. And most of America back then was big on not giving the government more money than they thought they had to. 
Times have changed radically, apparently. And so most of America was very excited and enthusiastic that here was a man saying, read my lips, there are not going to be any new tax heights, you're not going to have to pay any more than you're already paying. People were ecstatic. But what was interesting about that statement and why that statement became so famous in American political history is because there was a Democratic Congress who was not supportive of George Bush's statement, read my lips, no new taxes. And so taxes incrementally went up. And what is now remembered is that George Herbert Bush couldn't make good on his promise, read my lips, no new taxes. Now, I was thinking about that in light of this account. Jesus essentially says in this account, read my lips, your sins are forgiven you. Read my lips, take up your bed and walk. Um, Not everyone is happy that he says that in this account. Um, And yet it's one of those marvelous accounts where Jesus displays all of his divine authority and power. It's one of the most magnificent displays that Jesus does everything that he says. Everything that he says he will do, he does. And he has the authority and the power to say it and to do it. We're going to see... Today, uh, five things in this account. First, we're going to consider the setting of the miracle. Secondly, the paralytic and his friends. Third, the word of Jesus. Fourth, the opposition of religious leaders. And fifth, the power of Jesus. The setting, the paralytic and his friends, the word of Jesus, the opposition of religious leaders, and the power of Jesus. We'll notice that Luke, as he is tracing this out, continues to tell us that Jesus continues to teach. Jesus continues to preach. He, he has withdrawn for a time. He has gone and he has strengthened his soul in prayer. That was one of the marked uh, characteristics of Jesus's ministry. He drew power for ministry by prayer But then going and communing with his father is what drove him back out among the people to preach and to teach and to proclaim that the kingdom of God had come. And in this instance, notice that Jesus has become so popular. The healings have, in a sense, drawn the masses to Jesus. Who doesn't want to see something spectacular? That was one of the great weaknesses with the Jews of Jesus' day, Jews want to see a sign. Jesus is here not there to do a sign, but he is there preaching and he is there teaching, though the power of the Lord, we're told, is with him to heal. And notice that as he is teaching, we are told that Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. People are making long treks to come and hear Jesus. People are coming with mixed motives. Um, We're going to see that. Not everybody there was really there to see Jesus. Many of them were there to try to trap Jesus in something that he said. You know, you think about the political landscape of our own day and how many people are spending the better parts of their miserable lives researching what politicians have said so that they can lay a trap where they have said something they disagree with or shouldn't have said. People are spending their lives doing that. There are people here coming to hear Jesus. They are packing into the church, but their hearts are not right. They're not there to worship Jesus. They're not there to receive from him the divine teaching. They're there to try to ensnare him. But there are some that are crowding in. The crowds, notice verse 19, are packing in. Jesus is in a house. Uh, We don't know whose house it is. He is going from synagogues to cities, from cities to homes. He is teaching and preaching everywhere, and his popularity is immense, and the crowds are coming, and there, there is so much attention given to who Jesus is, even early in his ministry, that this house is so filled that no one can get in. 
Now, um, I think sometimes we lose sight of we lose sight of who Jesus is because we fail to see the attention that he was drawing in the days of his flesh in that mixed multitude crowding in and surrounding him. And notice that it's in that setting, it's in the setting of Jesus in this teaching ministry and all the people coming from different cities with mixed motives to come around him that this marvelous healing takes place. We're told that there's a paralytic and, and he has friends and they're carrying him and they're trying to bring him into the crowd to see Jesus. And, and one of the things that we see before we look at the paralytic and his friends is we see the heartlessness of the crowds. You know, it's one of those things that may not strike you when you first read this. Um, people are very selfish. We're very selfish. Um, you know, I've noticed, and, and maybe you've noticed this, when you have sought to get to know other people, how little they're interested in getting to know you. Um, uh, Jesus said that where the love of the many grows cold, lawlessness abounds. I think that's a marked characteristic of our society, um, where, where lawlessness increases, love decreases. Um, this was a pretty lawless society, actually. This is the church. This is the old covenant church. These are people just like you and me who profess to be believers who were coming to church, these are the covenant people of God. And they could care less that there's a paralytic outside trying to be brought into Jesus. They're not making way for him. They're not, they, all they care about is what they're there for. Isn't that fascinating? That's the setting of this miracle, that all these people care about is their agenda. And I've been thinking a lot about sin, and, and you know, sin is selfishness. So, all selfishness is sin. All sin is selfishness. Um, when we aren't caring about others, when we are not concerned about the burdens of others, when we are not generous, when we are not merciful, when we are not compassionate, it's because we're thinking about ourselves. We're thinking of our own agendas. We're thinking about pleasing ourselves, laying up for ourselves, doing for ourselves. We might even be thinking about our children. You, know, you can be supremely selfish and care about your children. You can, you can care about their education. You can care about their career. You can care about their success. You can care about their health. You can care about their sports. You can care about their learning the Bible and be supremely selfish in all those things. Here, the setting of this miracle is that there is a selfish crowd gathered around Jesus, and they won't even let this, this paralytic come in. They know that Jesus can heal. They're there because they've heard he can heal. They're there because he has power to heal. Notice that Luke highlights that in verse, uh, in verse 17, the latter part, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. They, they were there because they had heard. They were there perhaps because they had seen, but they really don't care about people coming and being healed by Jesus. They only care if they get some satisfaction out of going and investigating. It's very interesting. It's very sobering. Um, I think that it demands from us an examination, what is my main interest in sitting under the ministry of the word? What is my main concern in reading God's word? What is my main concern in wanting my children to learn God's word? What is my main concern about others that I gather with? 
um, in worship? Am I concerned about their needs and their burdens? Am I interested in others? Or am I just seeking to please myself? Am I seeking to do what I think will be good for me in some sort of supremely selfish sense? Here, I think Luke is in a very subtle way highlighting for us um, the, the compassionlessness of this crowd. Notice verse 19, the paralytic and his friends, we are told, found no way to be brought in. They could not bring him in. You, you get the picture from Luke's uh, narrative and from the descriptions that they're, they're going around to different areas and, and they're probably saying, oh, excuse us, you know, can we get through, can we get through? And, and nobody's letting them in. Um, this is not just, they brought them, they see the crowd out there and they think, ah, it's packed, we're not going to get in. They sought a way to get in, and they could not. Um, Now, the paralytic and his friends, what do we do with this? This is one of those uh, wonderful and wonderfully mysterious uh, accounts in Scripture. There are so many questions that this opens up for us. Uh, what, What was the discussion that the paralytic had had with his friends before this incident? We don't know. We We can surmise, we can assume that this paralytic had heard that Jesus had healed other paralytics. We don't know the extent of this man's paralysis. We could assume that he was a quadriplegic. We could assume that he was completely paralyzed. We don't know how long he had been paralyzed. We could assume that he was paralyzed sometime into his life and that it was not something he was born with. Um, the assumption that he had these friends that he had made in life perhaps could lend itself to that. We do not know if this man sinned in some way in order to call down divine chastisement in the form of the paralysis. He may have. We are often too quick to say this man did nothing to deserve this. We always like to do that, by the way, because we do need to be careful. Maybe this man had not done anything, but the way that Jesus treats him indicates that maybe he had. We know very little, and yet we know that this man and his friends had been having discussions about Jesus. We can be, of that much we can be sure, we know that this man is absolutely helpless. We know that this man can't do anything for himself, that he's utterly dependent on the help of his friends. We know that this man has probably gone to his friends, and we know that these these, uh, these characters in this account, that they're believers. They, they, they have true faith in Jesus. They, we don't know if they've ever had an interaction with Jesus. We don't know if they had ever heard Jesus for themselves. It's possible that here Jesus is coming into their city, into their town, and they've heard the news that has spread, and they are merely acting on that. But of this much we can be sure, There is something in the conversation of this man and his friends that must lead us to conclude that they had said, there is a man named Jesus of Nazareth, and this man can heal, and this man can forgive, this man is the Savior, this man has the ability to do, and this man only has the ability to do what we need him to do. I assume that this paralytic had been to many doctors, and those doctors had told him, you're hopeless, there's nothing we can do for you. This is how you're going to spend the rest of your life. Get used to it. You know, the time may come when you may find yourself in a situation like this. We go through life and we think I'll always be young and I'll always have health and I'll always be okay. And you know, many Christians find that turning point in their life unexpectedly. Um, a child gets a terminal illness 
Um, they undergo some great sickness. It's, it's oftentimes very unexpected. And then the news comes. And it's, there's nothing we can do for you. You know, I don't think we appreciate this until we put ourselves in that situation. Until we say, this could be me. And in fact, spiritually, this is me. And just like the leper in the last account, this man is a picture of the spiritual paralysis of all of us. This man is a walking picture of spiritual paralysis. I remember as an unbeliever, um, enslaved in sin to such an extent, I couldn't get out of it. And I'll never forget, I was sitting at a bar with a woman that I'd never met before and talking about just the the depths of um, just enslavement I felt to everything that I was in. And she said, well, you know, you've just got to make the decision to change. And I said, I can't. You see, that woman was ignorant of what she was. Um, I was realizing the spiritual paralysis of human nature. That's all of us by nature. That's you by nature. That's me by nature. Just like the leper, the uncleanness, the paralysis is us by nature. This man is a picture of all men. And this man in his acknowledging his helplessness, in acknowledging what he really needs, He begs his friends, please take me to the Savior. And they go, and they come in, and they can't find a way to bring him in front of Jesus. Now, one of the beautiful things about this account, and one of the things you have no doubt noticed about this account, if you've read it or meditated on it, is that this man's friends will do whatever they have to do to get him to Jesus. It's really an amazing account. Um, Andrew Gray, he was a great Scottish pastor of the 17th century. He died at 22. And if you read his sermons, you would feel how miserably unspiritual you are. Uh, Andrew Gray, writing on this and meditating on this, wrote, when faith cannot win through impediments, it goes above them and mounts over them until it reaches Christ. When faith cannot win through impediments, it goes above them and mounts over them until it reaches Christ. There's this beautiful picture The faith that this man has and the faith that his friends have will not be stopped. It will get them to Jesus. True true faith gets us to Jesus. If you want to know if you have saving faith, you can look at all the marks uh, of, of are you pursuing godliness, are you doing this, are you doing that, and those things have a place. But at the end of the day, the really important thing is, do you want to know if you have saving faith? Have you done everything possible to make your way to Jesus? That's... That's the question. Union with Jesus is the surest mark that I have believed into union with Jesus. I have overcome all the impediments. I have overcome all the obstacles, and I have made my way to Christ. You know, you see a contrast to the, the, and actually a comparison and a coalescing of the faith of the paralytic's friends in the Syrophoenician woman. In Matthew 15, remember, she's a Gentile. And she cries out to Jesus to heal her daughter. And Jesus says to her, it's not good to give the children's bread to the little dogs. She's a Gentile dog. Jesus said that, not me. Um, Take it up with him if you don't like that. Um, He had come to Israel first. He had come to do the miracles in Israel first. And and he essentially says to her, hey, I'm going to put an obstacle in the way of your faith, to, to see where your faith is really taking you. And he says it's not good to give the children's bread to the little dog. She had everything against her. She couldn't heal her daughter. 
Other people were trying to keep her from the Savior. Jesus himself was saying, hey, this miracle that you're asking me to do isn't really yours by virtue of your not being a member of the covenant. And that woman says to Jesus, even the little dogs eat the crumbs off the master's tables. She said, her faith said, these are just crumbs. This isn't even bread. For you to heal my daughter is just crumbs. She exhibited what Andrew Gray said, that when faith encounters impediments, it does whatever it has to to go over them and to get to Jesus. And notice that Luke is going to tell us that's exactly what happens. These friends could have, after a couple attempts in this heartless crowd to get through to Jesus and to bring their friend, and I like to envision that there's four of them and they're carrying him not on a, on a mattress, but on some sort of blanket, some heavy blanket, and they're carrying him in and no one will let them through and they try and they try and they try. They could have easily said, and many of us would have done this, I think, if we had been there in their situation. You know what? Can't get in. We can't get through. But no, they devise another plan. They think, how can we get our friend to the feet of Jesus? What can we do to get him to the feet of Jesus? Now, he may have been saying, listen, you have got to get me to him. He is my only hope. And they are saying, okay, what can we do? And if you've ever seen these homes in Palestine, you've seen that there are these very narrow little stairwells up to the top of the rooftop of the house where there is clay and mud roofing and maybe tiling. And these friends carry their friend up that very narrow stairway. And they go up and they start to dig. And they start to rip up whatever is on that roof. And now I want you to imagine they're not, they're not just doing it in a little place. They're doing it in a place big enough to let their friend down. Like, People are inside and dirt is falling on them. Charles Spurgeon actually has this great thought. He says, you know, in the Old Testament, when, when somebody repented, they would put dust on their head. And he said, I love the thought of the, of the dirt and, and, the, and, the, um, and the particles falling on the heads of the Pharisee. It's the first time they've ever had dust on their head. Um, here these men are doing everything. They are, they are doing everything to set their friend at the feet of Jesus. And Luke tells us that, notice, finding no way to bring them in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, they let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. Now, here's what I want us to take away from this section about the paralytic and his friends. Um, There is at one and the same time a lesson here to us as individuals and a lesson here to us as Christians. Um, as individuals, the question is, have you ever seen your need for Jesus? And we're going to consider that in more detail here in a minute. What's going on inside that paralytic to the extent that you have felt, if I do not get to him, I perish. You know, that is absolutely necessary. If you are going to get to heaven, and some of you may not, um, if you are going to get into glory and to be with Christ, you have to feel in your soul, I must get to him. And if you've never felt that, then you've never come to him. Only those who have felt, I must get to Jesus, and if I don't get to him, I perish, are people who get to Jesus and find life. Only those people. Um, sure, that may come in different degrees, but what happens to this man must happen to every single one of us. There is a word here for Christian friends. You know, these are real friends. These are the great ones of the earth. These are the rare ones of the earth. 
How often have we had friends like this who will say, I will do everything I can to build up this brother or sister in Christ. I will do every. How often have we been friends like this? My goal is to make sure that I am trying to bring everyone that I know and care about to Christ. I want everyone I know to be close to the Savior. I want to do whatever I have to do to witness to friends and family members and neighbors, whatever I have to do to be this sort of friend to people. You know, that marked contrast between the crowd and the friends. Don't miss that. Um, One of the saddest things in gospel ministry is see people come into churches where the word is preached, where the gospel is preached, where the means of God's grace are administered, where the sacrament is, where the singing of God's praises are, where prayer is. And I have seen that this in this church. And one, one family or individual begins complaining to another about what they don't have, and then ultimately they run them out of the church. Um, this is the, the complete antithesis of that. These friends say, the only thing our friend needs is Christ, and we will do everything to get him there and to keep him close to the Savior. There's the intimation that they let him down right at the feet of the Savior. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that an awesome picture? Dropping their friend down, hanging through the roof to make sure that he's close to the Savior. How fickle we are that we complain about what we don't have in churches, what we don't have in our homes, what we'd like to see in our lives. This is the one thing necessary. Luke will highlight that later, won't he? At the, as, as Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha's cumbered with much serving and Jesus says, Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Here, the paralytic and his friends are choosing the good portion. And they're saying, here, come to the Savior. Do what you have to to get others to the Savior. That's what faith looks like in action. Now, the word of Jesus. Uh, it's very interesting. The man has now been let down at the feet of Jesus. And you wonder, was this man surprised that Jesus didn't say, I'm willing, be healed? Because he just said that to the leper. He said to the leper, I'm willing, be healed. And immediately the man was healed. And he then told him to go to show himself to the priest. And it was a verifiable, powerful breaking in of the kingdom of God into time and space and the healing of the leper. Here, the man is let down and notice Jesus's word. Notice this. Uh, the, the man comes into the midst right before Jesus. And then notice verse 20. And when Jesus saw their faith, the collective faith of the man and his friends, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Um, Jesus is essentially saying to this man, no condemnation. Read my lips, no condemnation. Your sins are forgiven you, all of your sins. Every sin that you've ever committed, every sin you will commit, forgiven you. He doesn't say, rise, take up your bed, and walk first. He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, I think that this man knows that his greater need than to be healed of his paralysis was to be forgiven of his sins. In the other gospel writers, Jesus actually says to the man, be of good cheer. Um... He seems to be reaching into the turmoil this man had in his soul over his sins. Again, maybe this man had committed sins that led to this chastening. Maybe not. But this man knows that he's a sinner. Jesus knows that he's a sinner. Jesus is teaching us that our greatest need is not health. 
It's not to be healed of infirmities. It's not to have a better job. It's not to have a better marriage. It's not to have all of those things in order that the greatest need of every man and woman is to have your sins forgiven. Um, Sinclair Ferguson says, the degree to which you see your own need for the forgiveness of God is the measure of how clearly you understand the gospel. You see, I think these, these friends and this man are coming to Jesus not just for his paralysis, but for his soul. Um, Jesus declares that powerful word of forgiveness. Um, now, we're going to see the interplay here in just a moment with the objection that Jesus now elicits from the religious leaders and then what he exhibits. But uh, Martin Luther makes this really profound point. He says, you know, this man has done nothing to merit forgiveness. He hasn't, he hasn't had a moral renovation of life. He hasn't said, I'll do better. He hasn't said, what can I do so that God will accept me? He's let down through this roof into the midst right before the Savior. And the first words Jesus say, says by grace are, son, your sins are forgiven you. Uh, Luther says, Christ forgives sins freely. He is no usurer, no shopkeeper in the forgiveness of sins market. He will not collect interest on the forgiveness that he freely gives. Now that we have received from him the forgiveness of our, our sins, all he wants is that we do the work of our vocation, help our neighbor, and bear the fruit of our faith. It's a very important point. This man does nothing to merit. You know, the entire Roman Catholic system in which Luther is writing that was one of meriting, that you need to make satisfaction for your sins, that in order to have the forgiveness of the sins that you know that you have and that weigh you down, you've got to do more, you've got to do better, you've got to serve more, you've got to be more involved in active neighborhood uh, communities and humanitarian aid and philanthropy, and you've got to be a better person, you've got to, you've got to shape up, you've got to clean up, you've got to do better. You know, that is deep in our hearts, isn't it? That's deep in your heart. If you don't know that, our consciences are hardwired to the covenant of works. You know, when we speak judgmentally, when we speak um, disdainfully of others, we're, we're just showing that's in our hearts, that we think we deserve forgiveness. This man does nothing. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. He comes to Jesus in absolute abandonment. And he says, you're forgiven. Now, uh, the opposition of the religious leaders is evident. Notice that Jesus either sees in their demeanor, which I think sometimes we ought to read when it says he perceived their thoughts. He's reading their body language, their transmissions. He sees... He either sees them checked out or he sees them mumbling or he sees them with some, most people are not good at hiding what's inside on their faces. And he sees that, he perceives what's in their hearts. He knows that their hearts are not right. And notice um, that the scribes and the Pharisees are questioning each other. They're saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? This is their moment. They've been waiting to trap Jesus. They have been looking for this opportunity. Don't miss this. This is the first conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees that will ultimately lead to him being crucified. This is it. This account is the very beginning of the opposition of self-righteous religious people to the Savior that will result in him being crucified. Now, they're right. Whoa, they're right? <laughs> they're right. They're correct. 
No one can forgive sins but God alone. They are reflecting on the Levitical law that if someone spoke blasphemies, they should be stoned. And, you know, they're correct. They're correct. No, no mere man can forgive sins. By the way, I, I like to reflect on this, that the Pharisees are in, in some sense more biblically accurate than the whole papal system in Rome because Rome believes that the priest can absolve your sins and the wicked Pharisees who crucified Jesus know that they can't. So even the Pharisees knew that a mere man has no power to forgive sins. Now, ministers may have the power to proclaim the assurance of pardon. We do that in our service. But that is not an authoritative word of forgiveness. That's not saying, I forgive you, or now your sins are forgiven because I have authority in myself to forgive them. Jesus is claiming for himself the authority to forgive sins. He doesn't say, son, be assured that God has forgiven your sins. He said, man, your sins are forgiven. He speaks from himself. They recognize what he is saying. They recognize what he's claiming. I think in a very real sense, the Pharisees are recognizing that Jesus is claiming to be God. They know that he is the God. They, they see what he is saying about himself, and yet they're concluding he can't be. Jesus perceives their thoughts, verse 22, and he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Now, there is, there is a real and a very important thought here for us before I look at this final segment of this passage. You know, Jesus necessarily elicits a response. It is absolutely impossible to hear about Christ, to be in the presence of Christ, to have Jesus confront you with his word or with his work and, and not elicit a response. B.B. Um, Warfield said, no man can escape the test. Christ Jesus confronts us with all the spectacle of his perfect humanity, and here I would say and with his deity. When men are thinking least of him, lo, there he stands by their side. Every time his name is mentioned, the great crisis comes anew to the human soul. It's a beautiful way of thinking about it. Here Jesus is standing right by them. Here's the only one that can save their souls. The very thing that Jesus says to this paralytic is the very thing they need to hear, but they will not see their need for him. That's, that's shocking. The only savior of men is standing right next to them, and they will not see their need for him. Think about this. Physically, Jesus Christ is inches and feet from them, the only one that can deliver their souls from hell. And they grumble, and they show their hostility, and they show their animosity to him. And so he says to them, notice verse 23 now, to exhibit his power, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk. Now this is one of those great enigmatic sayings of Jesus, and it's one of the most beautiful things in the Bible um, I love this because there's so many contours and angles you can look at this saying, which is easier to say. And, that, you know, I almost wish I could hand out a bunch of paper and have you guys write down your answers, which is easier to say, son, your sins are forgiven you or rise and walk to a paralytic. Now, on one hand, 
it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no verifiable proof that that's actually occurred. So on one hand, it is actually easier for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven than it is for him to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. To say rise and walk and it doesn't happen is like, read my lips, no new taxes. He can't do what he's claimed to do. He can't make good on what he said. He doesn't have the authority or the power to do that. But notice that um, no sooner does he say this. Notice verse 24, he says to them, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Now, Jesus is intent not on just working a miracle to show that he can do a miracle. All of his miracles are works of mercy and love. There were no needless miracles. Jonathan Edwards will make that point. Jesus does no needless miracles, but Jesus is not doing this miracle just to do a miracle. He's not doing this to say, why won't you believe in me? Look what I can do. Look what I have power to do. He says that you may know that I have power on earth, that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, arise, take up your bed and walk. He is trying to prove and is proving that he has the power to forgive the sins of men and that he only has the power to. Now, um, the phrase that he uses, this might be lost on you. Jesus calls himself the son of man. It is Jesus's favorite self-designation. He will use it repeatedly in the Gospels. He will use it repeatedly in the Gospel of John. He will speak of himself in the third person, as it were, under the title, the Son of Man, to highlight something supremely important. And it's not his humanity. You might think, well, Son of Man, sure, yeah, he's a man, right? Son of God, he's God, Son of Man, he's man, deity, humanity, right? That makes sense wrong. And here's why that's wrong. Because that title comes straight out of Daniel 7, And in Daniel 7, Daniel sees in those visions, he said, I saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, even unto the Ancient of Days. It's the ascension of Christ, by the way. I saw him coming with the clouds of heaven unto the Ancient of Days, and to him was given a kingdom and power and authority and dominion that all nations should serve him. Now, this is astonishing. When Jesus loves to speak about himself and his work, he speaks about himself in light of Daniel 7, 13 and 14. That you may know that the son of man, the one who came from heaven, broke through heaven. You know, these friends let their friend down through the roof. God let his son down through the rent heavens, as it were. The son of man came. And the son of man who has all authority and power in heaven had all authority and power on earth. And that same son of man could say, son, your sins are forgiven be of good cheer, take up your bed and walk, and every single thing that he says, he demonstrated that he had the power and the authority to do. Now, this man immediately gets up. People are astonished. They glorify God. That's always a question I have. Let me just leave you with this. Um, Just because you're astonished uh, for a time at something Jesus does doesn't mean you're actually one of his. I imagine some of these same people cried out, crucify him, crucify him, just like the crowds that praised him um, when he made his way on the donkey 
And then days later, no one is praising him. Um, But they're astonished. We've seen extraordinary things. How can this be? And yet we're left with the question that Jesus says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you. Or arise, take up your bed and walk. Now I'm going to leave you with this thought this morning. It is actually easier for Jesus to say to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed and walk. Because in order to forgive that man's sins, he would have to be nailed to the tree. You see, Jesus can't just speak forgiveness into your life. Jesus can't just speak forgiveness without going and providing that forgiveness in his death on the cross. Remember I said last week that Jesus took all the uncleanness on himself. He took the leper's uncleanness when he functionally became a leper on the cross. He took the woman with the flow of blood's uncleanness when he functionally took the flow of blood on the cross. He took the little dead girl's uncleanness on himself when he died. I think in a very real sense, Jesus takes this man's paralysis on himself. Isn't that fascinating? He's nailed to the tree. He becomes, as it were, paralyzed on the tree. He won't get himself down. He can't get himself down, and there's no one to help him. There are no friends there that can help him. The crowds are mocking him, and yet he's doing on the cross the one thing that you and I need more than anything. He is taking all of our sinful paralysis on himself. He is taking all of our rebellion and wickedness, all of our all of our animosity and hostility, all of our lovelessness, all of our lack of care for others, all of our failures to be the kinds of friends that we're supposed to be, he is taking all of it on himself so that he says to us if we're trusting in him and if our faith has gotten to him, he says your sins are forgiven you. Now, I want to leave you with this final question in a variety of forms. First, have you, have you seen your need to be forgiven by Jesus? Have you ever really felt in your soul, if I don't get to him, I perish? Um, I know that that's something that God has to do in us by his grace, but it's something that has to happen in your life. Um, and so I ask you, has that happened to you? And then I want to say, if that's, that's happened to you and you've come to Christ and you've heard that word of, of pardon and you've heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest, and you've heard him say, I forgive you your sins, your sins are forgiven you, and you've had that assurance, but maybe time goes on and there's backsliding and there's a lack of spiritual vitality, there's spiritual declension in your life, there's... there's sort of disinterest, you've become more like the people in the house than this man and his friends in their fervent desire to be at the feet of Jesus and to help others come to Jesus. Um, Jesus would call you back to him this morning, and he would say, you know, overcome whatever impediment it is, sin or circumstances or whatever it is. Maybe it's friends that aren't building you up in Jesus because, you know, the Bible has a great deal to say about how friends can bring us down and not build us up, even subtly, because of what they care about or don't care about. Um, I would remind you that this is the same Jesus who will again assure you if you come to him, and he will say, your sins are forgiven you. I have the authority to forgive sins. How much more now that he's at the right hand of the Father, the Son of Man glorified right now? 
having ascended to the Ancient of Days, having all authority and power, how much more can we be assured that he says every time we go to him in repentance, your sins are forgiven you, that he says, I have authority in heaven and on earth, your sins are forgiven you. And then the last thing I want to challenge you with is I want to ask, um, how much are you pursuing being a friend like this paralytic's friends? That's a, that's a very important question that we have to ask ourselves. When I think about my friendships, when I think about those that I enjoy being around, how much do I talk about spiritual things? How much do I encourage corporate worship in a church where Jesus is, not programs and gimmicks and everything else that the flesh wants? How much do I encourage being at the feet of Jesus? And, and when I see friends stumbling or weak or needy or helpless, am I coming in and praying for them and, and praying with them and encouraging them? There, there are 10,000 ways that this passage applies itself to us. Um, but I want us to go, as you go from here this morning, I want us to go with a fresh sight of the authority and the power that Jesus has. Because that is the main purport of this passage. He has all authority, all power, all compassion, all mercy. He forgives and he heals. He builds up. He renews. He sends out and makes fruitful. He calls us into the work of ministry in his kingdom. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you that... Together with your Son and Spirit, you are the one true God who has power to forgive sins. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that even now, as you are the Son of Man, glorified at the right hand of your Father, that you have power in heaven to forgive our sins on earth. We thank you that you have power to heal. We thank you that you exhibited that power with such wisdom and perfection in this account in the days of your flesh. We pray that you would exhibit it in our lives. We pray that you would make our lives to be a witness to your forgiving and healing power. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would also make your grace manifest in our life, that we might be the sort of friends that this paralytic had, that you would make us to be a people whose faith will go over every obstacle and every impediment in order to bring ourselves and those that we care about to you. Lord, we commit ourselves to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.